0: Review. There are uh, three kind of parts of Galatians that we are looking at. Chapters one and two uh, refer to um, or, or speak to us about Paul's rebuke of the church. Uh, the church is remember. This letter was written to more than one church. It wasn't just the church at Galatia. This was a region. There's multiple churches there, and then he also defends his authority. Paul defends his authority as an apostle before those who were calling him a false teacher. Now, finally, Paul uh, defends his gospel uh, the very gospel that that he preached he uh, defends just one second okay the very gospel that he he was delivered that was delivered to him he is uh, he is defending uh, some people have had accused him of of uh, the, his gospel being made up, and he wants to defend the gospel. That was chapters 1 and 2. Uh, chapters 3 and 4, uh, Paul gives uh, the principles of justification, a word that we've used a lot, and we will defi- define once again in just uh, a bit. And then chapters 5 and 6, Paul gives uh, the privileges of justification, or what it means to live a life uh, being justified, practically what that, that means. Uh, last week, again, verses 1 through 4 uh, were preached. And in these verses, we see that that Paul was using Abraham as an example uh, for, for his main point uh, of the letter, that justification comes by faith alone. Uh, it comes by faith alone in Christ. And Christ uh, was uh, became a curse, uh, it says in these these verses, uh, for us. And then if we look at verse 14 with me. As we move into the next section, let's just look back up into chapter 3, verse 14. So, because Christ became a a curse for us, um, that means that so that in Christ, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. As we move now into the next passage, Paul will continue to, to lean into Abraham Uh, and the covenant promise that God had made with him. Listen as I read, beginning in verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with uh, a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul the covenant previously ratified by God. So as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. Verse 19. Why then the law? Was it added because of it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Verse 21. This is, is the law then contrary to the promises of God. Certainly not. For if the law had been given uh, that could give life, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scriptures imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise of faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come... We are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful this morning for the hope that we can have through the promise that you gave to Abraham, the promise of your son, the promise of grace, the inheritance, life. God, it's, uh, it's in Christ that we have our hope today that those things are true. God, we pray that you would give us understanding of this text. Help us to understand even how to apply it appropriately. We ask for your help now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Paul begins and he starts with the law and the promise. The law and the promise of God. He gives a human example to begin with. This is to try to show the place of the law. And When we say law, we mean the sum of God's commandments. So when Paul is talking about the law, he's talking about the Old Testament. He's talking about all the, the commandments that had been given in the law, in the Old Testament. And so when we say the law, we mean the sum of all those laws, okay? So he's giving us a, an example of how the law fits and where, where it fits. But he says even with a, a man made covenant, um, which would be like a legal will, according to Paul in his day, this is how this would go, it could not be changed or uh, annulled once it had been confirmed or established. Right? That, that's, what, that's what he is saying. So once this, this covenant has been made, it cannot be changed. So there, there, though there is a promise or a covenant then the law came, but the law does not change or annul the promise that had been Given In verse 17, Paul tells us that the law came 430 years after. He is referring here to the period of time that Israel was in slavery in Egypt before the Exodus. You may remember that in the book of Exodus. Right? Uh, during that time, when they were in, in, enslaved, those years, that's the 430 years, and after that, then, while they were in the wilderness, they received the law. Verse 18 Tells us that if the you can look at it here, if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. So, if after the promise was made to Abraham in Genesis twelve, if after that when the law comes, the the law annuls the promise, then that would mean that the way to get life, the way to get inheritance, the way to be saved, would be through obedience to the law, works of the law. But Paul continues, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So what God did was not annul the promise with the law. That that wasn't the purpose of the law. That That wouldn't work because it would say that what God had promised originally now had been changed. It would mean that we don't need a savior. We can work our way. It would mean that God changed his mind. It would mean that Christ died for no purpose. Look at your Bibles back to chapter 2, verse 21. Paul says this, said this once already. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If you could be saved, you could be justified, if you could be made righteous by your own works, then the work of Jesus is unnecessary. There's no purpose for it. It's saying then that the law would replace or nullify the promise, would be saying just that. Paul is showing us two ideas here. He's showing us promise and the law. One commentator says this, the promise was given to Abraham with the proper response of faith, believing. That's what Abraham did. He believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. The writer continues, later the law was given and cannot alter the terms of the original agreements. So to live by promise is to live by faith. That's what we're saying. And to live by the law is to live by works. If you live by the law, what you're saying is what what I do gets me to heaven, not the work of Jesus. There's significant consequences to believing that the law somehow has nullified the promise. Or as Martin Luther has said, the law says thou shalt. Thou shalt, thou shalt. But the promise says, the promise of God says, I will. And God did, He did. He followed through on His promise. Salvation and life and inheritance is either through grace or through works. It is one or the other. That, those are your only options. If you don't believe in grace, you're believing in works. Grace is, is the only alternative. To works, or I should say, works is the alternative, only alternative to grace, and it's a lie. Paul's point to the Galatians and throughout the New Testament was that salvation is by promise, not by performance. That you will never earn God's favor, your good works could never get you there. But thanks be to God for his gracious gift, the promised Son of God. Believe it this morning and receive it. Next, Paul moves to deal with two inevitable questions that come concerning the law. He lists them. The first one is why then the law? He actually says just that in verse 19. Why then the law? Okay, so if if the law came and it doesn't nullify the promise, it's still by grace, then, then, then what's the purpose of the law? Why why even have the law? Is the law no no good? It's 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 worthless. Well, He says this. Continue in verse 19. It was added because of transgressions. What does he mean? He means this, that the law turns sin into transgression. Transgression is a voluntary act of breaking the law. Intentionally breaking the law. A transgression is, I know the law and I've broken the law. That's what a transgression is. The law made it known what is right and what is wrong. The law revealed that you and I are a sinner. The law helps us become conscious of our sins. It made people knowledgeable of their sin. Verse 19, the law was given through angels, it says. And then he continues in verse 19, and it gets a little tricky here. Um, it was put in place by angels, by an intermediary. Now, the intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Now, commentators have a hard time with this, so we're not going to spend a lot of time with this, because if they have a hard time, guess who else has a hard time? That's right. So, um, we're not going to spend a ton of time here, but, but Paul, what Paul is saying, uh, the, the broader point of what Paul is saying is not taken away. There's, we're not missing anything if we don't quite get what Paul means right there. The emphasis of the passage is that he's helping believers understand how the law fits with the promise. He's he's helping them understand that this law that is a thing, that the law is a thing, it's there, we have to deal with it, does not nullify what God originally did in promising that one day he was going to send a Savior. Let's go on to the second question. Found in verse 21. Is the law then contrary contrary to the promise. So does the law contradict the promise? So are they at odds with one another? So are, they, are these, these two different things that it, uh, they, they conflict? Well, Paul says, certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would be indeed by the law. So he's saying God isn't offering another avenue to salvation. He had the promise, so Then he changed his mind and now it's law. That's not what he's doing. He's not nullifying. He's not giving two options, truly two options, or he's not changing the option because if he did that, then what we already said, the work of Christ would be rendered unimportant, unnecessary. Paul concludes that the law does not contradict, but rather it serves a different purpose, If through the law we could have life, the righteousness would be through the law. But rather, verse 22, read, but the scriptures imprisoned everything under sin. It imprisoned everything under sin. So this, the, the law reveals our sinfulness. The law reveals that we are imprisoned to sin. That we need help. That we are depraved. That it's only through faith in Christ and the promise of God to those who believe. That's the only way this actually works. The law shows us that we're worse off than we think we are. Because when you start looking at the law, you realize, I don't measure up. I could never measure up to that standard. That's the point. It imprisoned us. It caused us to see that we need help. We're prisoners of sins. We're helpless to free ourselves. We're not only missing the mark, but as one writer says, we're actually shooting in the opposite direction. Sometimes we talk about sin and we say that it's missing the mark or it's not getting there. We kind of have this view like we're trying, but it's not good enough. Actually, it's, it's that we're, we're, we're not even anywhere close. You're not even on the board. You're actually shooting in the wrong direction. The law can and does show us our sin, but it does not and cannot give life or righteousness, verse 21. So the law does not oppose the promise of salvation by faith, but it supports the promise by revealing our need for the promise, who is Christ. Paul wants them to understand we're not just throwing out the law because Jesus came, and it's like we're free from the law, the law means nothing. That's not the point either. He's showing how the law fits, which leads us to the next section, verses 23 through 29. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a, a guardian. The, the law was a guardian, a, a tutor, uh, helping us and uh, really imprisoning us, keeping us until Christ would came, or, or, or we could say it differently. The law was put in charge to lead us to Christ. That was the role of the law. It was to point us in the right direction of our need. See, the law reveals the greatness of Of our sin, and the promise reveals the greatness of our Savior. That's what the law did for you. The law revealed that you needed Him, and the promise reveals that there's a Savior to meet your greatest need. Verse 24 then says, In order that we might be justified by faith. There's our word again, right? We love that word here. Justification. Justification by faith, what does it mean? It means to be declared righteous. It means that God sees you as he sees Christ. God accepts you, not because of your work, but because of Christ's work. How could you be justified? How could you be declared righteous? How could Christ be seen instead of you? By repentance of faith. By coming to Christ and believing that he is the Savior you so desperately need. By believing that he is the one, the righteous one, who took your sin. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He took your sin and gave you his righteousness. Terrible exchange, right? It's not, not a good deal, seemingly. We get the better end of that deal, don't we? He gives us his righteousness and we get, he gets our righteousness. Sin, all by faith, the Bible says. Verse 25 Christ has come, so there's no longer a need for the law as a guardian. The law did its job. It, it was revealing, it does its job by revealing our sin and our need. This does not mean that the law has no effect on the Christian today. It's not that we just forget the law, it doesn't matter. What it means is that obedience to the law can never make us righteous. That's what it means. It means that the law can't save you. Your obedience can't save you. If you look at the law and think, I can do enough, that's actually showing you exactly what it was meant to do to show you that you can never do enough. The coming of Christ makes that clear. He had to come. We come into the last section of this passage, verses 26 through 29, and we see four results. Uh, Of faith in Christ. For in Christ, first, you are all sons of God through faith. Through faith in Christ, we are all sons, or some of your Bibles might say children of God. Through faith, you've been adopted into the family of God. That's good news, brother, sister, friend. You can be adopted into the family. There's room at the table. The the scriptures are are inclusive in the sense that that there's only one way to come, but they're exclusive in the sense that whosoever will may come. If you're willing to respond today, if you're willing to repent of your sins and believe on Jesus as your Savior, you may come. You may be part of the family of God. You may be part of the children of God. God can be your father too. Through faith in the person of Christ we are baptized into Christ and have put on Christ we are clothed with Christ this is this is talking about the new life this is talking about you being united with Christ this is the the new creation of second corinthians chapter 5 verse 17 we put on Christ we're different now three we are all one there's no Jew no Greek we're in verse 28 here. There's no Jew, no Greek, there's no slave, nor free, no male or female, for you are all one in Christ. Now, let me just put a quick side note here. Despite our cultural, uh, our current cultural moment, this verse, as well as other Pauline teachings, does not suggest that there are no longer any distinctions. This is not advocating for for any sort of um, gender neutrality or gender elimination or the elimination of gender roles. It's not saying that there are no ethnicities. Yes, there are. There are still Jews. There are still Gentiles. Th- that still is in effect. There, there are still uh, different social classes. That's still true. It's not saying those things don't exist, but rather what it's saying is that there is a unity in our diversity. That there still are male, men and there still are women. Amen. Good preaching. There still are men, and there still are women. That's true. And we all might feel like we know that, but the truth is that that is not being known. And a verse like this could be misunderstood to to think that God just eliminates distinctions. That's not the point of the verse. He is talking about the unity of the body of Christ, that that isn't our identity. Our ethnicity isn't our identity anymore. That isn't that is what we hold on to. We hold on to Christ. Fourthly, we are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. This is Paul's point. Remember the context of his letter. He's talking to these Galatian believers who have been misled about what the gospel is and how they come to Christ. And He's saying the way to belong to God is not about following the law or circumcision. It's about faith in Christ. whereas one writer says, faith is what makes a person a descendant of Abraham, not ethnicity or circumcision. Or we could say faith is what makes a person um, a part of the family of God, not ethnicity or circumcision. Again, this letter is written to churches. So there's implication here for us, isn't there? We don't just read these things and say, well, that was for them. That's not for us. We're, we're, not, we're not in Galatia. We're, we're in Cairo. We're in the thumb. No, that's not the, 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 that's not the way we read the Bible. We take the, what, what the implications or the, the applications or the responses ought to be. Now, we may believe in the promise. You may believe in the promise today, but maybe we treat others differently. Maybe we treat others by the law. We may uh, believe that that we're gracious people, but maybe we're judgmental with other people. Uh, Maybe we are understanding with with our tribe and people like us, but we're hard or, or critical on those who aren't like us. Maybe we could keep going. Maybe you find yourself in these statements These are symptomatic of a disease. The disease is the misappropriation of the gospel. It's a misuse of the gospel. It's a distortion of the work of Christ. It could could be considered gospel malpractice to think somehow in some way that you or your group or your tribe or people like you are better than someone else or, or are in any way being treated differently than anyone else. This passage, verses 26 through 29, primarily, are saying that's just not true. We are one in Christ. There's equality in the family of God. There's equality in the family of God. Amen. Doesn't matter your skin color or your economic level. Doesn't matter your, your region. It doesn't matter any of those things. There's equality in the family of God. And we must repent of believing anything else. We must repent of seeing ourselves as better than some you or me or people like us. We must repent of sitting in judgment or condemnation of others because they're not like us. And believe that God is the one, the only one just judge. So be relieved that job's taken. We must repent of thinking that God is only for certain types of people. And believe that justification is for whosoever will become. Whosoever will may come, but only by grace and through faith. Paul's motivation for these Galatians was to move them from foolishness. If you look in your Bible at verse one of chapter three, this is how he begins this chapter. You heard this last week. Oh foolish Galatians. He wants to move them from foolishness in verse one to Christ in verse 29. I think it could be right to say that he wants to move us in the same way this morning. Like the Gentiles, we too can drift from the gospel. We, can too, we too can contend to, to move to folly or legalism or pragmatism or, or liberalism or, or works or another gospel. Yet there is no other gospel. There is only one gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of grace, the gospel that Paul has been proclaiming, the gospel that we have been proclaiming, the gospel that's been proclaimed for centuries it's the same gospel, is the power of God unto salvation. So as we come this morning to this table before us, we want to recognize the promise of God in the person and the work of Jesus that's made available to all. This morning, if, if you've never responded to the, to the gospel, we would invite you to come this morning. Come to Christ, to see him as the Savior you so desperately need. Here at this table, we see how justification is made possible. We understand what justification is, but it's only made possible because there was one. There was one, only one, who lived the perfect life that you could never live, who died the death that you deserved so that you could have life everlasting. That's how justification is made possible. And our response is to believe. Jesus Christ is the ground of our justification. Here we see grace. As we sip of the cup and as we eat the bread, we see the promise, we see the fulfillment of the law, we see the giver of life. Let's pray. Father, where the service comes, I pray. Father, we recognize this morning that you are the giver of life. That you have, in, in kindness to us, sent your son. You've kept your word. The promise has come. And the law did its work. It has revealed to each one of us, it, in our moments of honesty, we recognize that, that we are not what we ought to be. And we could never be what you have called us to be. That, that is holy. So therefore, we are in desperate need of a Savior. God, help us, remind us again for the Christian here today, remind them again of their need. For those with us who do not know Jesus, may they see and savor this morning the beauty, the beauty of Jesus. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.